I suppose every community has its own traditions, passed down through the generations and carried on in modern times. Most people don't give these traditions a second thought, but most of them are harmless if they're not done, like placing an angel or a star on top of a Christmas tree. If you don't do it, or you decide to stick a sock up there instead, nothing bad will happen. That's the way of most traditions. Of course, that's just one of the harmless traditions. There are thousands of things we do each day that have been passed down to us from our grandparents or parents. We do them without a thought as to why we do them. Ask yourself why you don't walk under a ladder or put shoes on a table. Say bless you when someone sneezes or throw salt over your shoulder if you spill some at dinner. All these things have dark origins. i found that the further back in time you research traditions, the darker they become. Some are downright frightening and cruel. And that's why I'm telling you my story today. Some of the bloodiest and scariest traditions from ancient times have made it all the way into the 21st century nearly unchanged. With the introduction of the New Age and everybody spouting their testimonials about love and light and enlightenment, there is still at least one bloody, dark and vile tradition that I know about personally. Not because it was performed in front of me, or I participated in it. No, <laughs> nothing like that. I know about it because I was there when the people of a little rural town in Pennsylvania did not perform the traditional ceremony of their forefathers on a prescribed night five years ago. We're going to call the township Blessing, Pennsylvania. That's close enough to its real name. I don't want to lure any looky-loos to the place. Not only would it be dangerous for you, it might warp the ceremony in some weird way and bring another tragedy to the people there. They suffered enough, in my opinion. You might not agree with me after hearing the tale, but I'm keeping the real name out of the story anyway. Now, my cousin lived in Blessing and had been pestering me to come there and spend part of the fall with him and his family. He had a wife and three kids, who were just great, and I had a wife and a little rat terrier. We didn't have kids. My wife couldn't for whatever reason. Doesn't matter now. Now I knew the people who lived there were descended from a German family who moved to the United States back in the 1700s, and that this family started the town. They brought with them some of the old ways and old beliefs that had been passed down to them long ago. One of these beliefs was about the fertility of the land. Blessing was primarily an agricultural area then, and is still to this day. There are orchards and vegetable gardens that extend for miles in some parts. The community owes all its wealth to the uncannily high production of fruits and vegetables, not only is production off the charts, they had never seen a bad harvest. But the produce was the best around. There were no blights, no droughts, no bugs that gnawed up the vines. And the farmers swore that they never used chemical pesticides or fertilizers. Like most people who heard this, I scoffed. Whatever, 
I would tell my wife, Kelly, it's their lie. Let them propagate it however they want. Bruce, that's my cousin, married Nadine, who was a direct descendant of the founding family in Blessing. They lived in a grand manor situated on 50 acres of orchards and planting fields. Their two boys and their daughter had plenty of room to run and play outdoors. It was idyllic. Kelly told me that we should look into buying a home in Blessing, that she would love to live there. Nadine and Kelly hit it off immediately, talking like they'd known each other for ages. Kelly loved the kids. She always had the nurturing mother side, even though she couldn't have kids, so it was nice to see her being able to finally be motherly to some little ones. Our dog, Jazzy, well, he didn't care much for having to share her attention with the kids, but, you know, it was still nice. We settled in for a three-week stay at Bruce's, not realizing that we had ventured up there during one of the busiest times of the year, harvest time. He assured me that his harvesting would be complete within a week, and that we would still have plenty of time to visit and reconnect afterward. Naturally, I helped him with the work. I never realized before what back-breaking labor farm work was. After day four, I felt as if someone had dropped me off the side of a steep rocky mountain, and I'd rolled all the way to the bottom. Bruce laughed and told me to stay home that day. Hell, I didn't argue. I'm a school teacher, not a farmer. Now, Nadine regaled Kelly and I with the rich history of Blessing and her family. She was proud of her heritage, and it gave her a certain passion that made her stories come to life. As she and Kelly made lunch, the stories took a darker turn, though. She said the man who had founded the town had not taken chances on his crops from the very beginning. He apparently held to a certain annual ritual that included a blood sacrifice. She was quick to add that it was a fertility ritual, as if that cleared up the matter. Now, in my mind, that's just how things were in the old days. People believed weird things. It was here and now that mattered, in my opinion. When I asked about the last time the ritual was enacted... She got all edgy and brushed off the question without a direct answer. We're enlightened now, though. I mean, who needs to do fertility rituals for their crops anymore? She chuckled and turned the conversation toward finishing the meal. Enlightened. Yeah, I could see she was one of the New Agers. She and Bruce did live a little like hippies. Well... Rich hippies, but still, you get the idea. They were all about Mother Earth, light, and love, as if they could lead the way to the next great age of man. But they were really good people. They had their quirks, as all people do. Now, I put the incident out of my mind and enjoyed the next two days lazing around the house, recuperating from all the strained joints and muscles. And at the end of the week... Bruce announced that the harvesting was complete for the season. The only produce we would have after that would be the pumpkins, and they always let the little kids from the town's school come and take them for free on their yearly field trip. He also arranged for them to go on hayrides. Like I said, they were really good people. 
Kelly and I were excited to join the community for a harvest festival that was set to take place on the night of the full moon. It was held in an old barn. Nadine proudly told us it was the same barn her fifth great-grandfather had built when he had settled his family there all those years ago. Modifications had been made, of course, and maintenance had required the roof to be replaced and such, but it was still the same structure. The pond out behind the barn was large and dark under the moonlight. The festival started there with all the attendees holding newly harvested vegetables that had been fashioned into crude dolls above their heads and circling the pond three times. I couldn't understand what they were chanting as they walked, and I guessed that it must have been in German. Bruce said it didn't matter because we're outsiders. All we needed to do was carry our vegetables and circle the pond three times, and then toss them in just like everybody else. After the third time around, the line of people stopped and tossed their produce into the pond. Kelly and I followed suit. Then it was party time. There was plenty of wine and hard liquor if you were inclined to drink the harder stuff, which I personally avoided, and vegetables cooked every way you can imagine. There was no meat served that night, but Kelly and I ate plenty enough of everything else to make up for it. Just as the eating was winding down, some guys brought out their guitars, banjos, fiddles, and stringed instruments that I had no names for, and they began playing upbeat, kind of hillbilly music. People whooped and yelled and started dancing. They were in the barn in the barnyard where the full moon shone cold and bright from a cloudless sky. Kelly and I walked to the edge of the pond and looked over all the eerie vegetable dolls floating there. The whole ritual had bothered Kelly more than it had bothered me, and she seemed jumpier than usual, even with three glasses of wine in her. She startled every time a twig snapped. I told her it was just the way they did things in Blessing, and not to let it bother her. Nadine cleared her throat from behind us. Don't let what bother you? She smiled, looking from me to Kelly and back again. Kelly explained it to her. Nadine nodded sympathetically. Oh, don't you worry your pretty little head over this? She pointed to the pond. This is just the new fertility ritual. You know, to ensure next year's crops are at least as good as this year. She cast a nervous glance toward the pond as something gurgled there. She skillfully turned Kelly back toward the barn and kept talking. I followed, but I also kept looking behind us at the pond. Something was moving under that murky water. I walked back to the edge and let the women go on without me. That strange, deep gurgling sound came again. Three huge bubbles rose to the center of the water and I backed away. More of those huge bubbles broke the surface. The sound that accompanied them was indescribable. If you can imagine the earth moaning, that's kind of what it sounded like. Deep and reverberating through the air and up through the ground on which I stood until it shook through my bones. I didn't stick around to see what else might happen. 
I lit out a run towards the barn. I passed Kelly and Nadine just inside the open doors and found Bruce standing with a group of serious-looking men. They turned to me, scowling as I grabbed Bruce by the arm and spun him to face me. Man, there's something happening in the pond. I don't know what it is, but it sounds bad. I was speaking fast and yelling to be heard over the music. The group of men didn't waste any time. One of them said something in that other language and they all headed out the door. Bruce told me to stay with Kelly and Nadine and not to say anything to anyone else until he returned. Kelly had sat down on a bale of hay and lulled against the wall drunkenly. Nadine handed her a drink as I approached. She was telling her to drink up and she would feel better. Kelly sloshed the liquid onto her lap and nodded. I snatched the drink away and sniffed. It had been spiked heavily. I shoved it back to Nadine's hand. Can't you see she's already too drunk to sit straight? I shook Kelly and tried to cajole her into standing. I wanted to get out of there and back to the house. Nadine put the drink on the table and came back. This is a festival. We're supposed to drink too much, eat too much, and enjoy the fruits of our labors. Don't be such a downer, Chuck. She tried to shoo me away from my wife, and I realized she was pretty drunk too. She staggered into me, almost knocking us all three to the ground. I got her seated next to Kelly and looked around for a friendly face to help me out with them. Despite there being several dozen people present, none looked fit to help. They all danced drunkenly or had slumped into sitting positions around the barn. I decided Kelly was my main priority. Bruce could deal with Nadine when he got back. Kelly? I shook her harder and she groaned, her eyes fluttering open and she tried to focus on me. Kelly, come on. We need to get back to the house. Something's going on out back and I don't like it. Her eyes drifted shut again and I began to tug her to her feet. It's not easy to get someone on their feet when they're so drunk they don't seem to have bones. It was frustrating. I managed to pull her to the edge of the bale, and Nadine muttered something in her sleep. Told them to do it the old way. Now it's coming. She whimpered and a tear slipped from her closed eye. Hauling Kelly to her feet, I grasped her around the waist and half-dragged her toward the door. Just before we got out, there was a thunderous groan from the pond. Nothing of this world could have made such a sound. The musicians dropped their instruments and ran headlong out the front of the barn, past me and toward the side of the barn. I thought they were insane. The noise came from behind the barn. They should have been running in the opposite direction, which is exactly what I intended to do. With Kelly clutched to my side, I lurched through the doorway just as the back wall exploded inward. Screams clamored through the ruckus, chasing us as I tried to run. Kelly's dead weight at my side prevented any real speed, and I turned to see what was happening. And those eerie dolls were thrown through the missing back wall and rained down on the people inside with such force that they were knocked around like bowling pins. The screams intensified and a second volley of vegetable dolls came. 
Some of them were hurled hard enough that they went zinging by me and Kelly. Nadine scrambled out the doors towards us, her eyes wide and wild with terror. Three men lay dead in the middle of the door, one with his head partially ripped off of his shoulders. Another lay with a hole where his guts used to be. A third was missing an arm. The intestines of his friend were strewn all over his lifeless face. I motioned for Nadine to hurry, and an earthly shriek tore through the night. A gust of foul, warm wind blew my hair and shook the leaves of a nearby apple tree. Nadine stumbled as Kelly began to rouse. More people scrambled out of the barn, all of them with serious injuries and bleeding profusely. They all wore identical expressions of wide-eyed, white-faced terror. A woman came out backwards as she was dragging a large man by his feet. Her screams were audible above the other noise. I shook Kelly and she finally stood on her own two feet. She clutched at me blindly as she stared back at the horror show happening. I pulled her away from the scene, but she caught sight of Nadine limping towards us and she lunged out of my grasp, screaming for the other woman. I tried to hold on to her, but she stumbled forward and tore away from me. The next bit seemed to play out in a horrific, high-definition slow motion. Bruce and the other men in his group ran from behind the barn. Nadine fell, sprawling on the ground. Kelly landed on her knees close to Nadine, helping her up. A roar emanated from the pond, and a great geyser of black water spouted higher than the barn, and then the world was filled with brackish, fat raindrops that had the sickening consistency of syrup. And then, a monstrosity rose from the muddy pond bed, its legs like gnarled, twisted tree trunks, and its body like an ancient network of twisted roots ripped from the thick, muddy earthen tomb with obvious great effort. The long, squelching sound was ended with a slopping noise as the suction was broken and it was free. The creature moved toward the remains of the barn. I craned my neck up to see its face. I wish I had not. The face was a living thing sitting atop that eldritch and giant body. Gnarled vines and branches twisted and writhed. Children's faces emerged in the twisting mass, pressing outward as if trying to escape. The cage of branches that served as its torso bulged with the shapes of more things that I knew had once been living animals and children. The coalescing shapes that made up its face solidified momentarily as the monster drew in a great breath. The world seemed to be in a vacuum, as if it drew in not only the air around us, but also time itself. And I suddenly commanded my body to run for my wife and the fallen Nadine. But... It was in slow motion, like those horrible nightmares you have of running, but never really getting farther away from the thing chasing you. The creature screamed and time reset itself. And all of a sudden, I was hurtling forward, out of control and pinwheeling my arms to remain on my feet. I grabbed Kelly's arm and spun away from the barn, 
yanking her up to her feet and forcing her to stagger run to keep up. She screamed for Nadine one last time, and then she went down hard. The force of it dragged me off balance and I tumbled onto her. Rolling to the side in a full-blown panic, I hit something unmoving and was confused as this unmoving thing was jutting from my wife's chest. Focusing on her, I saw a long, thin tree branch sticking right out of her. My mind didn't want to believe she was gone, and I tried again to get her to her feet. Her eyes were unblinking, staring at me accusingly. I had brought her to this place. I had caused her to get killed. I felt like a murderer. And that's what her eyes said as I stood there wailing her name. Bruce ran to me and grabbed me by my shirt, shaking me violently. Leave her, Chuck. She's gone. They both are. We have to go. He started to run, and I turned to see Nadine pinned to the ground by a long, thin tree branch that looked more like a spear than a branch. My eyes drifted up to the creature and it was shooting the branch spears from its arms, killing some of its targets instantly and wounding others. All of them were pinned to the ground, immovable, their fate sealed. A branch whizzed by my face and I barely flinched. It shot through Bruce's thigh, stopping him in mid-stride. He yanked at his leg, using both hands, grunting in pain with each movement. Something in me finally let go and I ran to him, grabbing the branch and pulling with all my strength. Using our strength in tandem, we were able to dislodge the spear from the ground. Within seconds, we had it out of his leg and there was a hole the size of a grapefruit straight through his thigh. He motioned toward to a deep ditch in the front of the apple orchard. Over there, hide us, he said weakly. I dragged him to the ditch, not sure what good it would do. The thing from the pond was raining down destruction and death at lightning fast speed. We had no chance of escape. The only thing to do was huddle there in the ditch and wait to join Kelly once the creature found us. There was an open field for a good hundred feet or more before we could reach the cover of the apple trees. And I resigned myself to my fate. Life really wasn't life without Kelly by my side. After a few very long seconds, there was silence. I could hear only the creaking of the creature's body as it shifted its weight, crawling up to the top of the ditch. I peeked out. The creature stood in the barnyard looking down at a boy. Upon closer inspection... I saw that it was Bruce's oldest boy, Jacob. He stood fearlessly looking upon the creature. Bruce, it's Jacob. He's facing down that damn thing. My heart thudded heavily in my chest. Bruce dragged himself up and yelled for Jacob. He pulled himself the rest of the way out of the ditch, still screaming for his son. I wanted to be brave, I wanted to sprint over and grab Jacob and run as far as I could with him, but I couldn't move. 
Terror does what it wants with your body. No matter what high ideas you might have about how things should play out. Jacob stepped to the ravaged remains of the barn, disappeared inside, and returned almost immediately, pulling his younger brother with him. Is this what you want? Jacob lifted his little brother who kicked and squealed. He wasn't much smaller than Jacob, but the older boy didn't seem to have any trouble lifting him and keeping hold of him. The creature made a purring noise, but it wasn't cute like when a cat does it. It was more of a threatening grunting sound. Jacob stepped toward the thing, pushing Dax in front of him. He's yours. Take him and stop this. The creature bent forward, and its head opened down the middle, revealing a miniature lush landscape. I'm sure I even saw a rolling hill far inside with the sun riding its horizon. Dax stopped screaming and fighting. I did break into a run then. My body returned its loyalty, and I bolted towards the boys. No time for words. Just running. Jacob saw me first and moved to block my path. I knocked him to the side with my shoulder and I wasn't sorry one bit. I kept moving and reached out, snagging the back of Dax's jacket and kept moving. I swung him far out to the side and then pulled him close, my legs never slowing. I headed for the orchard ditch again. Kristen, Dax's older sister, was there. She stood by her sprawled father, grinning. As I slid down into the ditch, she pulled a knife from behind her back and jumped down the embankment on top of me. I shoved Dax away and yelled for him to run. Kristen brought the knife down, plunging it deep into my shoulder. I grabbed for it, but she yanked it up and brought it down again. It barely missed my face. The tip of the blade pierced my chest and I felt it hit a rib. Again, she stabbed toward me and the blade slid into my side. I'd always heard that teenage girls were brutal, but this was ridiculous. I struck out with my arm, taking her legs out from under her. Her squawk of surprise was followed by a string of curse words that would have shamed the sailor. She flung a rock at me as I pulled the knife free and started to run toward the trees. The piercing high scream spun me on my heel. It was Dax. Jacob had dragged him back to the creature that stood only yards from the ditch. Again, its head opened up, but this time there was no lush scenery. It looked like hell instead. An arm, black, gnarled, and fast as a snake, grabbed Dax and hauled him inside before I could get out of that ditch. Kristen was on me in a flash, dragging me back down to it. The creature turned and walked peacefully back to the now-empty pond. As it turned to face the barn, I could see a kid's face struggling to push free. It was Dax. His own siblings had given him over to that creature, to a fate worse than death. I was mortified at their actions. Both their parents were dead, and I was sure Kristen had stabbed Bruce to death. And the entire crowd from the festival were dead. And the ground had gone soggy from the pond water raining down and the blood from all the people. 
The creature swiveled its enormous head toward me and knelt down into the muck of the pond bed. I heard Kristen move up beside me, but was unable to tear my gaze away from the monster. Kristen whispered in my ear, Old gods only settle for old ways of doing things. Mom and Dad should have known that. Old gods always demanded a blood sacrifice. It's not just the crops that get destroyed if the old one doesn't get his due. There was a stinging, cold burn that lit up from the center of my throat to the left of my ear, followed by a hot gush of thick liquid. The smell of iron clogged my nose. She had cut my throat. The murdering little bitch slipped my throat and then walked off toward Jacob as if she had done nothing. The creature sank into the mud still staring at me. My head lolled to the side and I prayed to be with Kelly again as blackness took me in its arms and carried me away. Two days later. Two days later. While well, I awoke in a hospital bed. My hands and feet in padded restraints. A week later after that, I was released into my sister's care. Investigators came and went with some regularity that first year. I told them it was all a blank that I couldn't remember a single thing from my time in Blessing, Pennsylvania. I was so convinced that I almost convinced myself that I'd never been there at all. But then I see my scar in the mirror, and I feel the empty place in my bed where Kelly should have been. And I know it was all too real. I still have nightmares about that night, about Dax and Kelly. I've never even told my sister what happened that night. I tell her the same lie as I tell the investigators. No one would believe me anyway, and it would likely get me locked up in a psychiatric hospital. Yeah, no thank you. Now a year later, well, I read a small article from Blessing's little local newspaper. In it, the reporter boasted that, even in light of the previous year's tragedy, Blessing had record-breaking crops, and apparently, the produce is still the best around. The reporter was happy to announce that none of the locally grown produce had been tainted with any sort of chemical pesticides or fertilizers. This article was larger than the one immediately following it that was an announcement that a boy of five had gone missing in Blessing a few weeks prior. I quickly did the math. The boy went missing during the Harvest Festival. I cut out the articles and put them in a scrapbook. The same thing happened every year, and I suspect it'll keep happening every year from now on. I spent the first couple of years being appalled at such barbaric behavior. Then I realized one day, if I had known sacrificing one life could have prevented that catastrophe at the festival, I would have tossed someone into that pond. Or slit their throat without much persuading. I would still have Kelly. Bruce and Nadine would still be alive, as would their youngest, Dax. Jacob and Kristen wouldn't have turned into little murdering psychos. They had heard the stories since they were old enough to sit on their own. 
It was their bloodline who started the ritual in the United States. It had been their bloodline who had carried out the sacrifices every year as far back as anyone knew. They took it as their responsibility to carry on the tradition that their parents had been too weak to continue. I don't like to think that a person is being sacrificed to that monster every year, but I like even less the idea that a person is not being sacrificed there every year. <laughs> 